From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 193. Today's show is brought to you by FreshBooks, Pingdom, and Simple Contacts. My name is Mike Hurley. I'm joined by Jason Snell. Hola, Jason Snell. Hello, mate. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> You're changing the intro up. That's very strange, but nobody wants to talk about that. So, no, you know, we should probably move on. Strong beginning to this episode today. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a good one. It's going to be it's going to be a good one. Uh, so, yeah, we have a Snell Talk question, as we always do. Um, for, this one comes from listen Upgradian Ryan. Uh, Upgradian uh, yes. Ryan wants to know, Jason, do you schedule time for reading books during the day? Do you turn everything off to avoid distractions and really focus on what you're reading? Um, nope. <laughs> but you do read a lot of books, though, right? Like that is a thing. I I do read a lot of books. Um. The, a lot of it's driven by the incomparable these days, too, right? Because we've got... I'm in the uh, award reading period. We do episode or episodes about the all the novels that are nominated for the Hugo and Nebula Awards, which are like the big science fiction and fantasy awards every year. And it's a good way for, for me to find good books and uh, and get an idea of sort of like what people think are the best books of the year. I don't always mm-hmm. agree. There's usually some ones in there that I don't like, and there's some great surprises there. Um, I tend to read... Some on the weekend, and I tend to read at night before I go to sleep. Like I, I will read. Okay. I'll, I'll go to bed and I'll read there. And I don't turn everything off to avoid distractions because I use a Kindle. Ah. The Kindle has no distractions, mm-hmm. and that's the, that's the trick. A paper book would also have no push notifications, by the way. But I use a Kindle. I don't read on an iPhone or an iPad or something like that. And that's one of the reasons is that when I'm reading on my Kindle, that's all I'm doing is reading, and that's where I do. Almost all of my reading. Every now and then I'll get stuck somewhere in a waiting room or something and I'll have my phone and I will call up um, the Kindle app and read the book on there mm-hmm. briefly. But, you know, 99%, more than 99% of the time, it's on a Kindle. And uh, that'll that'll be around the house on the weekend or something like that. Or, uh, or occasionally I'll get in a book. This happened not too long ago. I was really into a book and I knew I was almost at the end. And it was the middle of the day and I took a break and I read the book for like half an hour or an hour or something and, and and then went back to went back to work, finished my lunch or whatever and went back to work. But usually it's in the evening, um, before I go to sleep and that and on the weekends. That's yeah. And and that's one of the reasons I love the Kindle. No distractions. It's just about text on a page and uh that works for me. Which Kindle are you using right now? I have the Oasis two um, which I can't really recommend. What I like about it is that it's solidly built and it's got buttons to turn the pages. It's nice, but it's also overpriced. Right. Um, most people should just get a Paperwhite, which just has the touch screen. It doesn't have the, uh, it doesn't have buttons, physical buttons, which they really should make. <laughs> but uh, apparently physical buttons are a premium feature now. So uh, the paper white is what most people should look at. It's a pretty good deal. And uh, it's a, I, like, I like a dedicated book reader. But I'm using the Oasis too. Thank you to Ryan for sending in that Snell Talk question. You can send in a question of any kind to start the show just by sending out a tweet with the hashtag Snell Talk, and it could be picked for a future episode. I have a piece of follow-up that comes in from Upgradian and friend of the show, Todd. Um, Todd wanted to just correct us about Arrested Development Season 4, so we were talking about that uh, in Upstream last week, about the fact that there is the remix version, and it seemed like that the regular season had just disappeared. Um, but it turns out that it is on, uh, there's like a tab 
in Netflix in some players and apps um, called Trailers and More, and it's right. the, the original season is buried in there. So you can still get it, but they're trying to hide it, which is really interesting. And, and so this came up on the TV Talk Machine podcast where Tim Goodman and I were talking about how we, we were baffled why about why Netflix, when it brings a show back for like a second season, that first episode doesn't start with a lengthy, like here's what you need to remember from season one trailer, Mm -hmm. which I still think they should do. But it turns out for their originals, they do make those. They're in the trailers and more section. Oh, interesting. And if you watch on... My understanding is, because this is how I use Netflix, if you watch on Apple TV, you can't see that section. So that's great. Right. <laughs> why why not, can't you see that? not in the app at all? I don't. As far as I can tell, I, last time I checked, there's like you can see the seasons, but I, I couldn't find the trailers and more. Please correct us if we're wrong about it, but I had a hard time finding it. On the web, I can find it. So uh, anyway, yes, that is where season four is. And also, again, this is like a good tip. If you want to watch a little recap of uh, season one of Stranger Things before going on to season two, look in the trailers and more section for Stranger Things, and you may find that Netflix actually did make a recap for you. I don't know why they don't put those at the front of the new season with a Mm -hmm. skip button. Because they're so good at those skip buttons anyway, right? Like they, they've always they're all right. over the place, and and they know that if somebody binges it, the, the you know if a show that's released weekly, there's like the traditional TV in in America certainly is the show's finale airs in May, and then it premieres in September. So you've got a few months where you have to remember where you left off. But when a show is a binge show, even if it releases every year, you wa- if you watch it in a weekend, you watched it in a weekend, and then a year passed like you're not gonna remember what happened and i know netflix may just want you to watch it again okay fine if you've got the time you could do that but like putting that uh, trailer up front to just get you back what you need to know would be really nice but it does live in many cases in the trailers and more section so uh i have to give a very important update on our live show at wwdc Mm. Uh, this is incredibly important if you've bought a ticket if you bought a ticket to our live show at WWDC, you really, really need to listen to this because, unfortunately, um, due to circumstances outside of our control, we have had to relocate the event and sell new tickets. So if you bought a ticket to our event at OrtConf on Wednesday the 6th, that ticket has been refunded. OrtConf have refunded them, and unfortunately, we've had to cancel the tickets. Uh, we did Some stuff happened, and we needed to get a new venue. Um, so we have a new venue, and it is an incredible venue that we're really excited about called the Hammer Theatre, which is so beautiful, and it has like tiered seating. It's incredible. But we have to sell new tickets for it. So if you bought a ticket to the original event, you will have gotten an email last week. I think it was on Friday. Um, that link... So there is a link in that email that you will need to go and buy tickets. So check your email. If you bought a ticket, you're going to need to buy a new ticket. The link is in there. Um, the tickets are about $7. Unfortunately, there were some fees that we had to, to kind of swallow up. And so that these these are just like a dollar fifty more or $2 more than the previous tickets. Um, we may share this link publicly at some point, uh, but we want to make sure everybody who bought an original ticket has a chance to get one before we do that. Um, so please, if you bought a ticket, make sure you check your email. You're looking for an email from OrtConf about the venue relocation, and it has all of the information that you need in there to get yourself a new ticket to our show at the Hammer Theater. Uh, we should give a bit of information about the show, which we haven't really shared yet, but we're looking to do a double bill. 
Um, it's gonna the, the show is gonna be split into two parts. The first part will be uh, your friend of mine, Jason Snell, uh, Stephen hey. Hackett, and Serenity Caldwell uh, breaking down all of the news from the conference because we're recording midweek. Um, and giving their insight, and this is what I find interesting about this kind of discussion, after being surrounded by the developer community for a few days. So, like, you know, the, the keynote was on Monday, but what is everybody talking about by Wednesday? What other little bits and details have we found out? So it's going to be like a mini episode of Download that's going to open the show. Um, and then the second part of the show is going to be myself and Federico Vitici and Steven have connected, and we're going to be doing what we do, expect hijinks, is basically all I'll say about that at the moment. Uh, oh, we're Gonna, we don't know what we're going to do yet, but there's going to be, we have some ideas. It's, you know, it's going to be themed around the event, but we have been known to get a little bit kooky when we record live shows, which is one of the reasons that we love doing live shows because the, the, it's very different. Um, so yeah, we're, I think we're going to have a fantastic show. Um, I think it's going to be our best one yet. So please make sure you don't miss it. Um, check your email if you bought a ticket. Um, and make sure that you get a new one. And we're going to give it maybe another week, and if there is any tickets left, we're going to put those out publicly. Um, this venue is incredible. I'm really excited about it. And talking about the venue, we really pushed for time on this, obviously, um, because we're getting so close to the event. We couldn't have done this without the help of Jessie Char. Um, she's one of the organizers of the Layers Conference, which is an amazing conference. It's organized by two women, um, Elaine and Jesse. They really care about every little detail. I've been to Layers before. I'm going to be hanging out at Layers this year as well because they have a great lineup of diverse speakers, including uh, the incredible lettering designer, Jessica Heesh, and one of the original Apple emoji designers, Angela Guzman. Um, I want to promote the conference because we would not have a live show if it was not for Jesse this year. Um, she really, really helped us out with finding a venue and, and getting everything negotiated. So you can find out more about Layers, and you should attend Layers if you're going to be in town. It's at layers.is, um, and they've given us a promo code for Relay FM listeners. Use the code RELAY, and you'll get $50 off uh, your ticket to Layers. So a bunch of information there. Uh, please, please, please check your email if you bought a ticket, and make sure you get another ticket. I really don't want anyone to miss out. Um, and I, again, I apologize that we've had to do this. Uh, we didn't want to have to do this but unfortunately we were put in a bit of a a bit of a bind but um we're gonna have an amazing show um and that show uh by the way that's going to be in the connected feed for the week so me and jason will be recording on monday straight after the keynote as we always do um where of course all of the focus is about who won the draft because there's going to be a draft uh that's mm. obviously going to be coming in a couple of weeks the draft right like two weeks away yeah, two weeks away. So that's going to be on the 28th will Yikes. be the draft, which I can't wait for. So excited about the draft. Uh, and then our episode on the 4th will be about all the news from the keynote. And then the live show is going to be on the 6th, and that will go out in the connected feed. So uh, you'll be able to check it out there. Whew, so much going on. It's really going to be a summer of oh, fun. Yeah. It's summer of fun. That's also happening. <laughs> summer of fun is happening. We're so excited. We're getting so much prepared for that. I am, yep. Love it. All right, so talking about weird and wonderful things we come up with, let's do some upstream news. Uh, I want to start right. off today, Jason, by talking about John Favreau's Star Wars series um, because Solo is premiering. Um, John Favreau has been doing a little bit of press too as part of the whole Star Wars family, um, and he's given some information about the upcoming series that he's going to be doing as part of Disney's upcoming streaming service. Uh, the show is still expected to debut in fall 2019. It's going to be set. It's planned to be set three years after Return of the Jedi, so obviously significantly before The Force Awakens. It's going to feature all new characters, and 
Something I found very interesting, at least from a budgetary perspective, they're going to be using the motion capture techniques that were seen in the Jungle Book, um, sort of live-action Jungle Book movie. So mm. looks like they're probably pouring quite a lot of money into this series. Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised, given that it's Star Wars and that Disney is wanting to launch this uh, this streaming service and get yeah. people to sign up. This is going to be one of the reasons people sign up for this mm-hmm. service. There'll probably be some Marvel shows, too, is my guess. Um, and and they, they'll make it a, a must-buy kind of situation for people who are fans of these franchises because they want your money. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, a little more detail. I'm sure they'll trickle out details for the next year. And fall 2019... Uh, I has Disney said if they're launching this service this year or next year? I thought it might have been this, maybe this fall, but there is more coming with with Disney. You know, they, they are well, going to launch I mean, the service. They could so. be launching one of their three total services this year, and then the other one the year after. Well, they they launched ESPN Plus. That's yep. out there. Um, so the the question is just like when does this uh when does this one one happen? And we don't really know yet. We know some details. Um, new Marvel show, all the MCU movies, a bunch of other stuff. So we, you know, there's just a question of what it's called and and uh, when they release it. But it's going to happen. So, oh, uh, we should talk about cancellations briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is an angle here that is upstream related. Um, I'd say not upstream related at all. Is just mentioning the the Brooklyn Nine Nine cancellation and yep. then renewal. Only to say that I think it's interesting from a business perspective and and something that people, when they talk about, look, we all love our TV shows and movies and stuff. And uh, you want to see decisions made based on, you know, tied into your love of something. You want to feel like your your love is the thing that drives this thing when it's not true. It's a business. And and these these are often just cold business decisions that go into this. In fact, most of the time they are because we're talking about millions and millions of dollars uh, for any TV show. So I want to mention this, though, because it is tied in with the way that all of these different companies are kind of jousting with each other and trying to figure out streaming and how their business models are going to work going forward. So Fox cancels the sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine after five years. It's a uh, it's a really good show. If you haven't watched it, you should check it out. Uh, it's from Michael Schur, who did Parks and Recreation and does The Good Place on NBC. Now, that that's actually relevant. Um, he's got a deal with Universal, which is Comcast, NBC, Universal. That's all the same thing, right? He, that's where his production deal is. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine is produced by NBC Universal. So it's a, a situation where Fox doesn't make the show. It only airs the show. And this vertical integration, this this like we make the show, we air the show, that's like those are the things that kind of integration is is what uh is the norm in Hollywood now and the idea there is your company invests in this thing and you get the short term benefit of putting it on TV and the long term benefit of reaping the rewards for video sales and syndication and all of those other things but sometimes they make these deals where they're going across that somebody who's a competitor um, but they're also their studio is providing you with a, a show. And the, the the reality is that these networks are much less inclined to keep those shows around because they're not they don't own them, basically. And so there, there's less of a business interest to keep them going. And so in this case, uh, we, we and we see this all the time. The network picks the shows that it owns and not the shows that it doesn't own. So Brooklyn Nine Nine drops. They they shop it around. They go to Hulu and Netflix apparently, who both turned them down for it. Like we're not interested. I was a little surprised that Hulu wasn't interested, but yeah. they weren't. And what's funny is that wasn't the end of it. 
obviously they were looking for a better deal from someone else to see if somebody else wanted to jump on and and revive this for a sixth season. But when they didn't make those deals with Hulu and Netflix to their satisfaction, um, they just put it on NBC. So NBC renewed it, and NBC is going to air it, which guess they own it, right? It's almost like that was the last. Uh, that was their last resort. Well, if we can't get somebody else to pay for this, we'll just pay for it ourselves. And then, you know, NBC gets the positive rub because, like, this became a big social media thing, right, over the 12 hours right. that the show was canceled, and then everyone's like, thank you, NBC, for saving our show. Right, and the, the social media, my, my daughter loves this show, and she was like, oh, we did it. And I said, no, you didn't. Like, <laughs> this deal was going to get made regardless of the fans. Jason, keep the dreams alive, my man. Keep the dream alive. No, no. No, you gotta um, gotta be realistic. But the uh, but it was good promotion for the show, and it's good promotion for NBC having picked it up. Um, but uh, but they're the owner and operator of that show now, so there's that. Plus, they've got the deal with the ongoing deal with Mike Shore for the Good Place. Um, so this kind of like it's another show they could run them together. They could run one of them and then follow the, with the other one because they're both short run. They're gonna bring it back for 13 episodes. So um, anyway, so think just think about who owns it. Who airs it and who owns it and it matters. And it matters. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot to another cancellation, which is the Expanse, which is on the Sci-Fi Channel in the U.S. And this has a little more upstream tie-in because uh, first off, who who runs the Sci-Fi Channel? It's NBC Universal. So we're now NBC's on the other side of it. They canceled this show, but they don't own it. Um, they renewed The Magicians, which is a similar show and also a very good show. Uh, but they own that show. That's a that's an NBC Universal show. This show, The Expanse, is owned by a company called Alcon, um, which sounds like they're a James Bond villain, but they uh, might not be. Uh, <laughs> they might be. I don't know. And uh, so, what's interesting? So, first off, not owned, right? So, so much less inclined to keep it around because you don't own a piece of it. And the report that broke uh, the cancellation, uh, which is a Deadline dot com, says, and this is where it gets to upstream. Um, the cancellation decision by Sci-Fi is said to be linked to the nature of its agreement for the series, which only gives the cable network first-run linear rights in the U.S. Linear meaning on a TV channel that runs, you know, that plays part of the show in an ad, and then you know, traditional TV. Um, it goes on to say that puts an extraordinary amount of emphasis on live linear viewing, which is inherently challenging for sci-fi genre series that tend to draw the lion's share of their audiences from digital and streaming. It, it sounds to me, I don't know all the details here, but it sounds to me like, I think maybe they don't get a, they only get a, like a small cut or, or whatever of like the iTunes sales and they have limits to when they can stream it on their own, on their own website. Um, it's a, so it's funny. So it's like, they didn't buy the right rights for this show probably because they didn't want to spend the money or or because the producer wanted to hold those back and use mm-hmm. it to help recoup their investment. There's obviously a deal made there and again we're just we're again it's a it's a fun show that I really like but w- when you talk about making it it's about money. So um so a bad deal in terms of streaming rights that might have seemed like a better deal 3 or 4 years ago but is very apparently now not is apparently one of the reasons why this thing got canceled at sci-fi um it's even worse because if you're outside of north america you may know that the expanse is one of these shows that like so many american shows is picked up for the rest of the world by netflix the difference is again something in this deal is really bad because most netflix shows that are that are like uh, u.s shows that are showed on netflix elsewhere um and this is true with streaming like star trek discovery it's also true with a lot of network tv shows 
they go on Netflix the next day in the rest of the world. So they're shown Sunday night, let's say, in the U.S., and on Monday it drops in the rest of the world. That's, that's sort of how these things work. The Expanse, they have to run the entire season weekly in the U.S., and then there's some, I don't even understand, waiting period that happens after that, and only then does it get dropped on Netflix worldwide, which means, of course, the show gets pirated. Because people who who don't want to get spoiled and people who want to watch the show now and not wait three months, four months, five months to see it are just going to pirate the show. So um, that's weird, too. So obviously, this is a show that they made this deal, which allowed this great show to happen for three years. But it clearly was a terrible deal in terms of modern television technology um, no, that nobody is happy with. So that deal's over. <laughs> Sci-Fi has canceled the show. And the next question is, will that show get picked up somewhere else? I'm actually really optimistic about it only because I feel like this is something where a streaming service comes in and says, oh, this is going to be way better once we can clear up the stupid deal that was set in at the beginning. So I'm not sure I would. I might actually say it's more likely than not that Netflix will just pick the show up worldwide, not because it's rescuing a canceled show, but because it's already a Netflix show in most of the world. And if uh, if they could just pick it up, then they could drop it in a binge everywhere like they like to do instead of this weird delayed thing outside the U.S. Then again, we don't know the deals contractually. We don't know whether this Alcon group is charging too much money. We don't know if when they made their streaming uh, deal in the U.S. with Amazon for the reruns, if that contract now makes it impossible for them to make a new deal with Netflix in the U.S. We don't know any of those details, but it's kind of funny. My, my, my hope is that streaming killed the show and streaming will also save it. If it doesn't, I still really want to see the postmortem of like, where did this go wrong? Because it sounds to me like this is a show that probably should still be on the air somewhere. But the deal that they made three years ago or four years ago to make this show has broken it. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll see. And it's a good show. People should watch it. I hope it doesn't get canceled ultimately. Uh, and lastly today, a Bloomberg report has indicated that Apple are currently looking at attempting to take on Amazon by offering subscriptions to video services directly through their TV app. This is something that Amazon offers uh, through Prime Video right now, where you can. Right, Amazon Channels, they call mm-hmm. it. Um, so this would be basically Apple taking a step but going further to making the TV app the one-stop shop for video content because they will be able to allow you to sign up for channels like HBO, Showtime, and a bunch of others just right within the TV app and watch the content in the TV app. Um, yeah. My expectation here is that this is some kind of like, you know, this is them doing some kind of in-app purchasey type thing. Which makes me wonder, like, do you, do we really think that they're going to be doing a 70-30 split with these companies? I doubt it. Because <laughs> Apple it. need this more than they do. Because, like, yep. I'm sure, like, HBO has already has their own app and service that you just download. So, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't really know how much this helps, but this just feels like something that you can say. Oh, and now you know when you're giving your update about the fact that we have the streaming service coming. Oh, and now you can also watch. HBO content even easier in the TV app because you well, can buy a subscription right there or something. I don't know. There's a question about the um, the mechanism behind this. This is a Bloomberg report, so it's kind of unclear about what... You have to parse their mm-hmm. words carefully and try to figure out what's going on here. Um, it does seem like a repudiation of the future of TV is apps strategy because it sounds a lot <laughs> more like app. the future. That's the, the, the future, future of TV, TV is, is the TV, is the TV app. app. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... 
I it, you could argue that maybe what it's about is app store discoverability, and that all this really is is putting those channels and those offerings front and center inside the TV app, so that um, so that you don't have to like download the HBO Now app and then sign up for HBO Now. You can just you can just say, oh, HBO sounds good in the TV app and click it and say, yes, I want that. And then it just works and it plays it in the app or it downloads the HBO app in the background and then just opens it when you navigate to it. There's lots of different ways that they could do it. And that, that's that's the implementation question here is like, do you never see the HBO app at that point? Because that's what happens with Amazon is when you get Prime Video and you subscribe to CBS All Access inside Prime Video, you just watch inside Prime Video. You don't go to their app. You use Amazon's app. Um, maybe that would be ha- that would happen here. We also have to ask the question: How does this tie into the Apple Video service? Because that's that's also probably part of the strategy here. Is that you're in the TV app, you can get HBO Now, you can get the Disney streaming service when it comes out, and you can get the Apple streaming service when it comes out. Presumably, that's where it will be. So putting other services in there too kind of makes sense. This is also, I think it's smart. I think it's actually really smart because. I like Amazon's approach here, which is, you know, we're not just Prime Video is not just a service. It's a it's a a catch all for all sorts of other services, too. And you can program your own set of streaming, which you do anyway, but you can do it all within their house. Mm -hmm. And Apple's building a you know, Apple's building a different kind of house here. Right. Because Apple is you're in an Apple TV. So you're already in Apple's domain at that point. Um, But uh, this is a way for for that stuff to get front and center and to go through Apple's stuff and Apple you know takes a cut I'm sure I doubt it is going to be the traditional cut this is probably a different kind of deal that they would make um but I like it I actually think the reason that I like it the most is that I think it's just better for people better better for the the customers better for the people who are using these apps um to for Apple to be like, you know what? Most of the time, just stay in the TV app. Tell us what you want. If you want a, a channel, if, if you want a show that's on a channel you don't get, you can just buy that channel, subscribe to that channel right there, and then just watch your show and don't worry about it. And you'll get one bill that's from Apple that says, here you are, you know, you paid for these four services and just don't worry about it. And that, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that approach, just the simplicity of it. All right, today's show is brought to you in part by Simple Contacts. So talking about apps making things more simple, that is what Simple Contacts does. Because what they do is they give you an easy way to renew your contact lens prescription from wherever you want in just minutes. All you need to do, you complete their online self-guided vision test. This takes less than five minutes to do, which you can do from wherever you are right now. You just download the Simple Contacts app and get started. Then you'll no longer have to wait in doctor's offices to get your contact lenses every time. No more waiting rooms, nothing. You can order your favorite contacts right from the website as well as their app you'll have all of the lens brands is that lenses brands that you love available to you with options for astigmatism multifocal lenses colored lenses and more they have a very wide range of products available and then you'll be able to reorder right from the palm of your hand anytime the vision test is just twenty dollars just for comparison an appointment without insurance could cost you two hundred and simple contacts will not only be helping you save money and time they just take away a bunch
bunch of frustrations as well. It's worth telling, and I have to tell you, so I will. Uh, this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. Simple contacts is you're checking that your prescription is correct, and they'll renew your lenses based on their prescription. They're not writing new prescriptions or examining your eye health. You still have to do that if, in whatever frequency it is that you need to do that. But when it comes to just reordering contact lenses, you don't need to go to a doctor's office and get checked out every time. And that is a huge time savings for you. Would you agree, Jason? I know that you've you've used simple contacts. Yeah, I mean, it's. I always got frustrated. You get the end of these um, these expendable items, contact lenses, and if you don't need to go see your doctor for a regular eye health appointment, you still have to go. Like they control the whole thing. And while I like to support my doctor and support the fact that they have, like you know, that they, I can get glasses there and that they're taking care of my vision, at the same time. It gets frustrating, this idea that uh, they want you to come back just to renew your existing prescription for for contacts. So simple contacts just makes it really easy to do that part. Yeah, it just it seems like I mean, it seems to me like just kind of like a real suck on your time. Right. To have to every time, like, I mean, I don't know how long the your prescriptions last for, like maybe like a couple of months or whatever, to have to keep going back. Like, who's got time for that in their day? This isn't a thing that people have time for, I think. So it's great that you can just use simple contacts to do it. As a listener of this show, you can get $30 off your contact lenses. Just go to simplecontacts.com slash ahoy or enter the code ahoy at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash A-H-O-Y, you know, like the telephone. Or simply use the code ahoy for $30 off our Thanks to Simple Contacts for their support of this show. So uh, last week was BB Edit's 25th anniversary, uh, which means the app is 26 years old. Um, yep. I've learned this from, from working uh, with you for a while, the, the difference between anniversaries and age of something. Um, because you, you, <laughs> well, you it, it's... It, right? <laughs> It's the twenty fifth. Well, it's the twenty fifth anniversary of the release of the commercial version of BB Edit, but there was a free version the year before. And I, I gotta think that because when they celebrated the uh, the fifteenth anniversary or the twentieth anniversary, I think it was the twentieth anniversary. That was six years ago. Um, they celebrated the twentieth anniversary of its release. I gotta think that maybe they just forgot last year, <laughs> and then realized like, oh, oh, but we can make it the anniversary of the commercial release this time we can do that um and so that's what they did but it has been because at 20 it was it was posted to usenet to, to the the mac binaries on that date 20 years before and this time it was it was released as a commercial product 25 years before so it was six years ago that i wrote the 20th anniversary post but still um i was for reasons that we'll get into in a minute i was looking through um, my box of kind of old software this week Mm-hmm. And um, or last week, and I found this thing that I knew I kept, which is the BB Edit Anthology. Which I wish more developers would do stuff like this. It's hilarious. It's a CD-ROM with every version of BB Edit on it, every sort of like major version of BB Edit on it, and it was meant to celebrate the the tenth anniversary of BB Edit because ten years is an awful long time to have software mm-hmm. and it had the first versions from you know from back in the in the early nineties all the way up to the present day in two thousand two and I laughed when I saw this because it's like oh yeah that's this was the tenth anniversary it was fifteen years ago fifteen years ago in fact now sixteen years ago because who's counting um, but. 
it is amazing when you think about it. And they put out a press release, and I'm quoted in there, and so is John Syracuse. And we both said the same thing, which is pretty funny, which is it went from OS 9 to OS 10. It went from 68,000 Motorola to PowerPC to Intel. Like, that is one of the remarkable things about this this product is that it just keeps on going. And there are other products that keep on going. Microsoft Word is a good example, right? Microsoft Excel, those all were on the 68,000 and they still exist. But BB Edit is the work of a very small group of people, primarily Rich Siegel, who is who wrote it originally and still is basically the person who does it. He's he's had other people here and there throughout history. Bare Bones used to be a little bit bigger. I think it's a little bit smaller now, but um I think it's remarkable that that in viewed from a certain angle, this is a person's life's work, essentially, and that he has been and we know like our friend James Thompson is a little bit like this, too, where he's been an independent developer for a very long time. And he's got in James's case, he had uh, drag thing and pcalc. But like there is a career to be made. And uh, there, and I think it needs to be really recognized as remarkable. Like the, they're sticking with these apps and the need for the app, as long as the need for the app continues, the app continues. But what people needed from a text editor in 1993 and what they need from one now and what they needed 10 years ago and 15 years ago and 20 years ago, all totally different, right? So you've got to navigate everybody's needs, what the competition is. You got to navigate the changes in the platform where Apple introduces PowerTalk and you're like, great, we're going to do PowerTalk. And then they're like, okay, PowerTalk is dead. And you're like, okay, you know, we'll move on to the next thing. Right. And they, and they just keep on doing that. Uh, That's what's remarkable because it's not just uh, that this app has survived. It's that the people who make it have stuck with it and that the people who use it have stuck with it all that time. Well, there there is one place that BB Edit never went to, right? Which is iOS. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think about that all the time. And I know, like, again, I think it, it, watching something like Scrivener, which is a tool that I really like for the Mac, and it's on iOS now. And Keith, the the main person who does Scrivener, again, kind of like it's his baby. That app, they tried to bring it to iOS for years, and they had well, from all the original of these failures. IPad. It was it, they were talking about it when the iPad oh, originally yeah. came out, and it only came out like last year. Yeah, well, and they went through developers, mm-hmm. and I think Keith ended up saying, "I have to write it myself." He was trying to get like an, some other an iOS developer to come in and do the iOS version, and and they had, I, I you know, I don't know all the gory details there, but like, it in the end they got it out, and it's very similar to the one on the Mac, and they sync and stuff, and it's great. But it took them a long time, and I think that suggests perhaps why Rich um, said, "You know, we're not gonna." We're not going to do that. But I think about it all the time. And the reason I think about it all the time is that I have yet to find an app on iOS that really does what BB Edit does on the Mac. I have I u- used all sorts of different text editors on iOS. And they all have things going for them. And yet none of them have have resonated with me like like BB Edit has on the Mac for all this time. And so I kind of, I'm kind of still looking on iOS. I'm still able to be... Uh, convinced and converted and turned into a loyal user of something that does everything that I want it to do. Um, which is not to say that, you know, one writer isn't fine. That's what I used to write most of my stuff on iOS these days. Mm-hmm. But it's not BB Edit. So, you know, it, it's 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 fine. But it, it, there are lots of things that it doesn't do. And Editorial was the same way. And, and you know, uh, Ulysses is the same way. And Scrivener is the same way. So uh, I, I, kill, I get why... 
BBEdit's not on iOS, but it kills me that BBEdit's not on iOS, nor is there something that is very clearly the BBEdit of iOS that is like, well, if you use BBEdit on the Mac, you ought to use this on iOS. Just haven't found it yet. Maybe someday. So uh, I should say the good the good thing about BBEdit is it's a text editor. It uses text files. So I don't need app interoperability in the same way that you do for a lot of apps between Mac and iOS. I, I have... All my stories that I write sync in a Dropbox folder called Stories. (laughs) And all of my text editors on iOS are integrated with Dropbox and look at that folder. And and it's text. It's markdown text for the most part. So that's the good thing, is that I don't need BBEdit for iOS because it's all just text files. So that that part's good, but I do want like all the features I use on it, and I generally don't find them. So you mentioned that you uh, were, were digging through some old software. I was. And when we were talking about putting this episode together, you you let me in on a little secret that we decided we have to talk about today, which mm-hmm. is that you're buying old computers. I, 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 bought, I bought an old... I went... I drove to the East Bay last Tuesday to somebody's house to pick up the first time i've done an ebay local pickup mm-hmm. usually local pickups on ebay you're like oh wow this g4 cube is really reasonable i wonder where oh you've got to be in kansas to pick it up otherwise they won't ship it to you this was a local pickup in the bay area and it was for a very reasonable sum of money i got a uh, a power mac g4 with a cinema display <laughs> um it's adorable <laughs> it's taken me back to the 90s um, oh, this was the tower after the iMac, right? So it's like blue and plastic and and all that stuff. Yeah, this is yeah. It's it's a it's a the one with the door that comes down on the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 this is this is actually I had one. This is a later model than the one that I had, which makes me a little sad. But the price could not be beat. And uh, yeah, so I have that. And also, actually, this is Stephen Hackett's fault. Let's yep. just say it. Yep. It's Stephen yep. Hackett's yep. fault because uh, we were in Austin and I was talking to him. And we were talking about, uh, he brought some uh, disk images of uh, virtual machines of Mac OS because you can run older <laughs> Mac OSs, um, what is it, from, you can run Leopard Server, Snow Leopard Server, and then after that, the client versions of OS ten legally in an emulator. So you can, so he had, I had a couple of the server versions and he had a couple of the client versions and we, we, we have images basically of all those versions. So if I want to go back and look at, are, at like what 10.7 looks these like. These are the wild things that everybody does uh, during my bachelor party. They, bachelor they, party, they, yeah, uh, oh yeah. There's, they exchange there's a disc images. You, 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 you record podcasts, you, wow, wow. Ta- you do uh, <laughs> charts about Apple results and you exchange <laughs> Mac OS 10 virtualization disc images. <laughs> These are the things you do. Um, so he 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 and I are talking about it, and I think to myself that you know this is one of the challenges is this loss of history, mm-hmm. and there come and and he he has noticed this, and I've noticed it too. Like there comes a point where you're like, what did that look like in ten four? And the answer is who knows. Like I just kept upgrading my computer, and I don't remember what mac os 10 10.4 was like or 10.6 or sometimes people will ask us even on ask upgrade like you know when did apple do this and it's like uh let's do some searches maybe we can find it i lived through it but i don't know if i i know it uh and and i thought i i don't have a project here i 
I can imagine some things that I might write about, about some of this stuff, the older Macs and Apple history stuff that I might want to do at some point. And um, what what set me off on this is that Stephen said, I was saying, well, what Macs are versatile in terms of version numbers? That you run a lot of different versions of Mac OS. And he said, you know, the 2009s, the 2009 like iMac is really good because it runs um, from Leopard all the way to El Capitan. So it's a really big spread. And I thought, I have a 2009 iMac in the back of my car at, at the airport parking lot that's supposed to go to the computer recycling center. So I came home and I pulled the iMac out of the car, put it back in my office, and it's now four feet away from me. Um, and it has on separate partitions fresh, uh, freshly updated installs of um, all the versions of OS of OS ten from Leopard through uh, El Capitan. Now, <laughs> hold when you when you do the startup disk mm-hmm. uh, system preference, it is amazing. <laughs> it's like take your pick. You got to scroll but to left and right. They don't all fit in the window. It's amazing. So I've got that, and then I bought this Power Mac G four with a monitor um it because it's a quicksilver it doesn't run 10.0 which makes me sad because i had the i had the i may still i may yet buy uh an older power mac g4 but uh this one runs 10.1 through 10.5 so it gives me a pretty good uh cross-section of the early history um not a lot of emulation options for power pc uh which makes it bad for um there's like that chunk of Mac history that's kind of lost if you don't have an old computer because it's very hard to emulate. You can emulate OS 9 and OS 8 and even back to System 6 really easily. But the early days of OS 10 are a lot harder to do an emulation. So um, there's kind of a no man's land there. Uh, so I bought a you know $150 computer <laughs> and got it running. And let me tell you, not only is it a nostalgia trip because I remember writing reviews of ten uh, one and ten two and all of that. So to see them again, it's like wow, how much OS ten has changed between then and now, and what hasn't changed. The fact that I can be running ten one and connect to my file server, like just Command K, put in the the um, address, log in, and there's my file server. That made me laugh. Like that's strange. I didn't expect that level of compatibility. Um, but the other thing I noticed, and this is true on my uh, 2009 iMac as well as this 2002 Power Mac G4, is turns out when you run the original software that came on those machines, instead of spending several years upgrading them, they're fast. <laughs> That's uh, It's logical, right? Because you don't buy a brand new computer. In the 2000s, we didn't buy a brand new computer and it was slow. It was fast. But then you update it over time and they they build it for the newer hardware and the older hardware runs it, but not as well. So it was really refreshing to take this this yeah. uh, iMac that yeah. I consider ancient and slow and install um, Leopard on it. It's really fast with Leopard. It came with Leopard to begin with. It's really fast on Leopard. Like they're, they're not slow because they get old. Like They're slow yeah. because the software outdates the performance capabilities. Exactly right. Now, 10, like OS 10, 10.0 and 10.1 to a certain extent, but 10.0 especially, is just slow. It was slow everywhere. But in those in that era, most of the comp- the computers didn't come with OS 10, 10.0. They came with OS 9, <laughs> and that was the one you ran, and it was fast. Mm-hmm. And 10.0 was new and experimental and all of that. But generally, once they got the bugs worked out, 
you get a computer and it's fast. And then they add a whole bunch of new features that take advantage of the new hardware that's coming out. And the old hardware doesn't do as good a job. And they don't, it's like when we talk about um, how Apple should test older iPhones when they do iOS releases, because they they have brutal performance issues on some iOS releases on older hardware. And and the, the truth of the matter is that you generally don't worry about the older hardware. You're building this for the newer hardware. it's not a priority. It's not business priority. But what it made me think is the next time I hand down a machine, I, we all want the latest and greatest features, but I'm going to, next time I hand down a machine to one of my kids, let's say, um, I'm going to really think hard about going back to the original uh, OS version because they they run way better under their original. Like my, my son is using, I think he's got, he might have uh, Sierra on his MacBook Air, mm-hmm. and like if if that was if that was running Yosemite instead, I bet you it would run better or whatever version. In fact, it might even be it's probably an earlier version than that that it's that it is its earliest version that it runs. It would probably run way better. It wouldn't do all sorts of the whizzy stuff like this. Power Mac G4 can't basically can't browse the web because the web browsers built for it or. <laughs> can't do SSL, modern SSL stuff. And so they're just like, I can't even open the Apple hot news page that was the default on some of those <laughs> versions. It just doesn't work. And the older versions, like I, you can't even download a version of iCab, which is usually your go-to for like a browser that's still being built for old versions, but not that old. So, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that just falls out entirely. But at the same time, like, you know what? If you've got a 2009 iMac and you put, you know, an older version of Microsoft Word on it or BB Edit for that matter, it's fine. Like, it's fine for a whole lot of uses. It's just not the modern uses that we have. So um, it's something to keep in mind if you've got an old computer around and you know somebody who wants to use it. The problem is that, like, the web technologies especially, that's the challenge and security issues, right? Those drive you forward in software versions. And then as you drive forward, the, the, the computer becomes less usable. Uh, unfortunately, but that that's true. And, you know, uh, that this is why people like there are people out there who still use Windows XP because they're super comfortable with it and it runs great on their old hardware. But it's a, you know, it's a garbage fire of security issues. So I don't know. Anyway, I've got uh, I've got old computers around me now. Are you going to start a YouTube channel talking about all well, of your six- old Macs? Six Colors already has a YouTube channel that people should mm-hmm. subscribe to because every now and then I do it. I, I am trying. I was talking to Stephen about this too. I want to do videos. He does two videos a month, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably a pace that is beyond my capability. But yeah, I do want to do some more stuff in, with video and this gives me some more options. Um, I I tend not to do, other than last week when I did that iMac at 20 story um, because I had to, right? I don't generally spend a lot of time writing about old Apple stuff. It's funny because I lived through it, and yet Stephen Hackett, who didn't, is the one who writes about it mm-hmm. because he has a uh, he has a wife and family who support his purchase of lots and <laughs> lots and lots of old computers in a way that I do not. Uh, but and which is fine. Um, but I'm think I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it because I I do I got my. I got my old Macworld magazines out of uh, a box last mm. week too because I was looking up a bunch Memories. of stuff about the iMac. And yeah, it's kind of fun that I have my work for 20 years printed out <laughs> on pieces of paper. It's kind of cool. Um, it, it's old-fashioned and yet also has a permanence that things I write on the web do not. <laughs> um, 
but anyway, so I'm thinking about it. I, I don't, I don't want to just go full on nostalgia, but I think there may be some interesting uh, things to write about and make videos about. So I, I at least wanted to have them uh, having that stuff inaccessible where I like literally can't talk about early OS 10 days because I have no examples of it that I can run anywhere. That was kind of frustrating. So even if this Power Mac G4 just kind of goes in the corner and doesn't do anything most of the time, um, I'm, I kind of want to have it for reference reasons. And it looks kind of cool. The, the monitor actually is the beautiful part. The cinema display, it's this teeny tiny monitor, but it's like the translucent plastic all around it. Um, and it's a single connector to the G4 because this was the Apple. Apple built their own connector. Of course they did. The Apple Display Connector. But it's got power and USB in it as well as the video signal. And that's why they did it. Is It's a single cable from the video card and the G4 to the cinema display. And then you can. it's got USB hubs on the back. It's like before there was a Thunderbolt display, this is how they had to do it. They had to engineer their own cable in order to do all of that. But as a result, the the computer itself is a monstrosity. And this one in particular has these incredibly loud fans. It is the wind tunnel G4. Um, but the, the actual computing experience of having this little screen and your little keyboard and mouse. Oh, the eBay person gave me a, a round uh, iMac mouse Uh-oh. with it. And I was like, thanks. And then immediately disconnected it. And Just threw it out of the call window on the way home. I'd like to say I stomped on it, but it's it's around somewhere. It's so bad. It's so bad. Um, anyway, so the the little cinema display and all that, it's kind of adorable. It's, it's definitely the pro version of the iMac design that they were mm-hmm. trying to get across. Yeah. Okay, today's show is also brought to you by our friends at FreshBooks. FreshBooks know how important it is to make, help you make smart decisions for your business because they know how important it is to when you, as a business owner, are doing the right thing, making the right decisions. So they will help support you in a few different ways. One, they're going to help save you time. By simplifying tasks like invoicing and expense tracking and getting paid online, FreshBooks has hugely reduced the time that it takes for their 10 million customers to deal with their paperwork. FreshBooks' cloud accounting software for freelancers is so easy to use that every day it's going to make all of this stuff better for you. If you ever find yourself like swamped down with invoices, like, oh, you're making them in pages or something, and then you're emailing them to someone, and then you're like keeping some kind of spreadsheet, like, oh, okay, I sent this one on this day, and it's going to be paid by this date you need to stop doing that immediately like please like i i can get you so much sanity back in your working life by just recommending to you to use fresh books FreshBooks keeps track of everything for you. All of your clients are saved in there. All of your invoices are saved in there. When you set up an invoice, it's super easy. You get it sent out in seconds because they like if you keep regular line items that you're sending to someone, that stuff's all saved and can be pre-filled. Everything is so simple to do, and you don't need to do any of the chasing because you can check if someone's received your invoice. You can even set it up that FreshBooks will automate late payment email reminders, so you just spend way less time chasing payments and more time doing what it is you do like doing what it is you need to do doing whatever it is you want to do this is what's great about FreshBooks. they will take care of all of this stuff for you so you don't have to if you're listening to this you send out invoices or you track time or deal with expenses and you've not yet tried FreshBooks, please take my advice and try it they're offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial for listeners of this show you don't need to give them any credit card information you just have to go to freshbooks.com upgrade and enter upgrade in the how did you hear about a section so they will know that you came to them from this show. Our thanks to FreshBooks for their continued support of Upgrade and Relay FM. 
All right, let's talk about Google Duplex. Um, we got to do it. We got to do it. We got to do it. I was hesitant of it, but we're going to do it. All right, Google Duplex, in case you haven't been following, was announced at Google I.O. last week. And in a nutshell, Google Duplex is like the next evolution of Google's AI and machine learning. Um, it's kind of maybe Google, Google Assistant and steroids, right? Like it's it's taking everything that they have learned and they're applying this technology in different ways to accomplish different things. Um, Maybe. The only thing that they have shown so far is that Google Duplex can make telephone calls for you on your behalf um, to restaurants and businesses, etc. I'm assuming that if you listen to this show, you have probably heard this news. Uh, probably. Both me and Jason have shared, I think, our feelings about it um, in some detail on episode 54 of Download and episode 192 of Connected. Just, I want to get it out of the way real quickly that both me and Jason, we feel very similarly about this. Um, I think immediately both of us were in the, I don't like this. Um, I, I was never impressed by what I saw in the way that I know a lot of people are. And I understand why people are impressed by it. But it, it kind of, it made me go a little bit cold inside because it freaked me out when I first saw the video. Because I, I find it creepy. Uh, I find it a little bit disingenuous because... It's basically designed to trick humans and is kind of like a little inhumane in the way that it's, I don't know, not human, which, and it kind of felt yeah. like a juxtaposition. It's, it's a very, very definition of inhumane. But like, no, I mean, like, it's not that they're doing like an evil, inhumane, disgusting thing, but like, it's just removing humanity from the, from the, the process, right? Yep. Like inhumane is one of those words that can, that has like a, vast spectrum of what it can yeah. be attributed Flammable to. means inflammable? Exactly. What a country. Um, so uh, what I, you know, kind of what I, I didn't like how they were positioning this, especially when they were talking about like digital well-being and being good online and being good users of technology yeah. later on. I didn't like the whole, these two things didn't meet up for me. Um, no. I've seen a lot of people believe that this criticism is being levied at Google because Apple fanboys. Um, I understand why people may feel that way. I 100% would feel this way if Apple did it. And I know this because I don't have that general fear of Google that a lot of people in the Apple world do. Sure. Um, I am totally happy and I use many Google services and I give them all my data gladly because I like the the exchange of information for productivity that I get with Google. I'm happy with that. Me too. I'm I'm I am a I'm in the Apple ecosystem, the Google ecosystem, and the Amazon ecosystem. I am mm-hmm. I am not a a a one ecosystem person. I I have so much of Google stuff that I use. So I agree. It's not it's not that. Although I do have to laugh at the idea. Like, well, what if Apple did this? Yeah, like right. Like Apple would have AI this good. as if they could do it. As if they could do it. <laughs> but but I will say it also plays into our 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 preconceptions about Google. Like I think what I someone download is yeah. this is like the stereotype of Google, yeah. which is incredible technology that you cannot believe somebody built, and that you also cannot believe that there was nobody at any point that said, should we really do it this way, it's, to the point where it got all the way to the very beginning of the Google I.O. keynote, which mm-hmm. is like, at no point did somebody think, we're put, we're investing time in building an assistant that pretends to be human, that f- so it can fool humans, that maybe we shouldn't go down that path and we should disclose who we are instead of trying to trick people. And nobody, like, again, this is, this is the stereotype of Google that, ironically, Sundar Pichai was trying to get 
away from when he was talking about caring about their users and and doing things to to get them to be away from their devices and all of that. Mm -hmm. But this is that stereotype, which is they're brilliant and they have no concept of like ethics or morality or humanity or anything like that. And like this plays right into that whole narrative, which is why if Apple did it, it would be weird and we'd be like wait a second that's so strange that you did that whereas with google we're like of course this is google saying this and that's that's maybe not fair but they've kind of earned it i feel like that that uh this is not the first time something like this has been done by google and i understand how it got to that keynote like i can see how that happened Right, like everyone it's a great was demo. so Everybody's excited. Like, it's amazing! What an amazing demo! Yeah. People are going to go nuts about this mm-hmm. thing. Absolutely, building technology that good is is something to be proud of. But your application sure. of it was lacking. It's also the the steps in the process. This is actually the thing that after having a week to think about this, the thing that I keep thinking about is somebody somewhere said we need to fool people. Yeah. Like yeah. literally yeah. that was the charter. This because is what, what I, they this did. This is what and, I don't like about it either. This, this is I think this is the the nugget of what me, made me and you so uncomfortable. Right. Is they they in, by inserting all those ums and uhs and up talk and kind of uh stalling expressions, things that you, normal human beings use, right? And it was an amazing demo of that. Like, oh my god, this assistant sounds way more like a human being than the ones that we talk to all the time. And like, that was brilliant. It, it's arguable, but, right? And I've seen some people make this argument like just as a, as a point. That like duplex basically passed the Turing test because the human <laughs> beings on the other end of the line had no idea. At least in the two samples that we saw, At right? Least in Which the two is- samples that they showed, there was many more that failed, right? Like obviously. I have lots of questions too about um, a sidebar. Um, I have a lot of questions about how they trained this thing. Did they have people at Google posing as? Uh, service workers or did they just crank call service workers throughout the bay area as part of their machine learning and training for this i I don't think they've disclosed sort of like how did they train this and who did they train it on and then presumably they took the people that they're talking to here uh agreed after the fact to be used on stage or they weren't really business owners and they were people at google pretending to be um i'm not quite sure what's going on there but uh i have a lot of questions about that but the root of it and this is what what uh, you and i i think do agree on is that technology is amazing but at no point did anybody say wait a second is our goal here to lie to people on the phone is our goal our goal here is to fool them because you don't build in the ums and the uhs and the question marks i think the up talks without having intent to deceive I, I i don't because this is not a product at least the way that the product is pitched is it's not a product where you know it's a robot but they sound like a human this is pitched as a product that you don't know it's a robot you think it's a human and you're doing your work to talk to the human. And for me, that's that's where I, I, I say, why did nobody say it's unethical to build software designed to hack a human being and fool them into thinking that we're something we're not? That is that is a bad look. That is not something we should be doing. What are our best practices here? And I know people who are t- tired of pundits belly aching about this thing, which you probably are. Um, but the point that I think is really important here is these are the moments where we as members of a society push back on the creators of this stuff and say, this is too far. Yeah. You need to have, you need to think about how you interact with human beings because as a society, as a culture, 
we've decided these are the rules about how computers talk to, to people. Just like as a, as a culture, we decide that it's not legal to secretly record a phone call, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not that different from that sort of idea. Like, say you're a computer and move on. But um, we need to talk about that now. And I, I think it's very clear that the people who are programming this stuff are not only not capable, but are not even thinking of the social ramifications yep. of this stuff because that that's that and that's what made me angry is like they don't seem to care i mean i can see an innocent to a point way that people decided to build in the ums and ahs right where it was kind of just like wow this thing is so good how much better could we make it but like not thinking on the other side of it where there should be someone who's saying to them no Right, like you should not do that, right? Like what I mean is that you know, I can imagine how it may have been built without the intent to deceive, but someone should have spotted it, made that yeah. clear, which I'm sure many people did inside of Google, right? Cuz I've been inside of big companies, like you can very you, you can have a very vocal minority right that don't believe that's anything other, and it still goes out. That's the other part out. of this, right? Is that the, the that it's not necessarily that nobody at Google saw this and argued about it. It's that they lost. Yeah, or nobody that high up end, enough got believed that it was wrong. Exactly, exactly right. I should also say, I mean, I do think this technology is impressive. I share. Uh, they had a good discussion on ATP last week about this. I shared John Syracuse's skepticism about this. We can we can take it as read. We can take it on face that this works. Uh, my first thought, honestly, after saying, oh, wow, look what they did there. That's amazing uh, technology. The, the, I, my second thought was not the ethics. My second thought was, I don't believe this is real. My second thought was literally, I cannot believe that they could get this accurately enough that they could turn it loose on the world at scale, which is what Google does, and have it be functional. I just don't believe it. It would be, I just, I don't think the tech is actually good enough. I, it, it felt to me like some one of these things that Google promises and then never quite delivers because I think it's an overreach. And if they prove me wrong, then so be it. But I, I, as somebody who's observed this tech stuff for a while now, I looked at it and thought, ah, this seems like it's a stretch technology wise but if you could get it to work like this i mean great but i think it's better served in answering the phone than making the calls right like better and i'm okay with the idea that some small business somewhere has a google service that answers their phone for them and is a call screener and makes appointments and drops them on a google calendar and transfers them to a voicemail if they need to leave a message for a human being like we already see versions of that now it's sort of a sophisticated answering machine um but that's not what this does this is in uh, a computer is bugging a person and more than that it's also on a larger scale google getting frustrated that there's still corners of the world that it can't map and control and like the paper appointment book in a small business like a hair salon or a restaurant that's not on one of these restaurant scheduling services there are there are um people at google who hate that Right? Why won't they get with the times? Why can't we consume their information? Why can't we make them part of the scheduling API that mm-hmm. everybody else in the world is following now? And it, it looks to me like this is the solution for that problem. This is why it was designed. It's literally designed to make a robot that calls people because they want Google to have control over that that scheduling book in a way that they can't now. And 
that 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 yeah that bugs me because it's like this is google's priority but they and and they're they'll do anything they can to reach that and i think that's i think that's a mistake there are lots of positive places this could be used if you're in a place where you don't speak the language very well um it could speak for you again disclosure is the key there uh if you have uh disabilities or you have other issues in your life that make you either unable to speak clearly or uh, deeply reluctant to talk on the phone. I could see this as an agent that lets you do that um, or lets you get things done that would otherwise be things you couldn't do. I think that's all good. But again, disclosure would probably not kill that. The fooling people part just really bugs me. And I I have to say, (laughs) I'm not mad, Google. I'm disappointed, I'm disappointed. because I thought Google, and I think Google is getting better about this stuff, but this shows you how entrenched this way of thinking is at Google, that they're still doing stuff like this. I, and I, I, I think they're making progress. I would like to think they're getting better at this. This is an unfortunate backslide to the worst, the best and worst of Google, which is brilliant technology, and there's nobody asking a question about whether they should do it or not. Google released a statement. They published a blog post and released a statement um, to various outlets. I'll read the statement that they gave to The Verge. Uh, We are designing this feature with disclosure built in and will make sure the system is appropriately identified. What we showed at I.O. was an early technology demo, and we look forward to incorporating feedback as we develop this into a product. So there's two things here. I'm very pleased that they're going to consider adding uh, transparency into this and disclosure. I do not for one second believe that that was the plan when they went into I.O. Um, yep. Because they, I'm sure it's written on a whiteboard somewhere, right? I'm sure someone was thinking about it. I'm sure they had a team looking at it. But they didn't think it was important enough to mention this at I.O. Um, but, but they thought it was important enough to make sure everybody knew about it after the internet was lit on fire for a couple of days, right? So... I'm very pleased that that they have listened. I think this is a sign of that changing Google, as you mentioned, right? They have listened and responded correctly by being like, yeah, no, we're going to do this. But I think they're kind of covering their tracks up a little bit. It's my opinion. I'll never know, but that's my opinion. And and for the argument, there's an argument to be made that like, oh, but we don't want to we don't want to restrain Google's innovation here. It's like I kind of disagree because I feel like you could channel Google's innovation. Like, yeah. If somebody early on had said to the people who worked very hard making this very impressive tech demo that the, their fundamental approach of lacking disclosure and their rationale for building this technology of trying to get to a human being who controls a paper address book that you can't book over the web with a web form, that um, that was not going to fly and that that was antithetical to their uh, val- corporate values. And that they, let's talk about, like, what could we do? What problem are we trying to solve here? Is this a problem that Google should solve? How should we solve it? What are the best practices about identifying that you're an intelligent agent when you're talking to a human being? Uh, When you receive a call, when you send a call, when you start that call, are those different? Like, there's a whole conversation that could be had up front before this technology got too far along that steered the building of this technology in a way that would get an impressive tech demo, but also a product that people wouldn't object to. And that didn't happen. So that, that for me is the, is the part that, 
that um, makes me stumble here is like, mm-hmm. I get clever people wanting to build clever things to solve problems. And that at one level, you want to have them keep being clever and doing those things. But at some point along the way, ideally before it goes too far, you instill in your culture that asking questions of like, should we do this? Because it's super wasteful to build something uh, a big project that you demo on stage and only after that's all done everybody goes oh this is a terrible idea and now what do we do like get out in front of it like ask these questions yourself what what do you what do you what are your values and um for all of the changes at google it always has been an engineer first culture and it still is this demo shows it it still is and the problem with that is that is the people who build the technology are not usually focused on how people will use it or the rights and wrongs of it. They just want to build something cool. And I realize that is a gross generalization, but we're talking in, in massive terms in a giant company and the corporate culture that goes along with it. And that's what we got out here. Very clearly, this is still part of what Google is. And um, I think they would be better served having more of a, uh, you know, more of a super ego looking down and saying, maybe not do that <laughs> in that way. I mean, there are a bunch of things that I would like to see this technology do. Um, like, in my mind, I would love to see this technology turned upon itself in that, you know, let's say me and you were trying to arrange a time to record the show, and we just let our Google assistants just talk to each well, other and deal with but it. But there's like a, there's like APIs for that now. Like you don't need a talking assistant for that. Right, I don't my, need my, my robot to call your robot because we're the, both the, connected. Well, okay, yes and no. So I mean, I've used a bunch of these services, and the problem that I always have is they just look for what's the next available slot and just book it in. But I want an AI that understands my personal preferences, like. If I have nothing sure. on my calendar before upgrade, I don't want a meeting before upgrade, right? Right, but you're you're asking for better calendar app and better calendar scheduling protocols. Mm-hmm. That that's that's the thing here is that a spoken word agent doesn't is not the solution to your problem. It's a solution to a very narrow domain of things that this that you know that involve talking to human beings who need have information that the computer needs to get. That that's the that's the challenge. I could mm-hmm. see it with like if you have a friend who this this is the challenge. You have a friend who doesn't have a schedule that's shared with you, and you need to coordinate with them, and they don't have a computer schedule. That then you're frustrated, right? Like how do we make this work? But you could talk to your friend and schedule it instead of having a computer do it. Yeah, I, I, this is very basic, right? I don't have the mind to come up with these ideas, but like the point that I was just trying to make is like there is a nugget of interesting technology that exists within this thing but it was implemented badly. Like this demo could have gone very differently for Google, right? Like I think they could have solved almost the entire problem by having, instead of it saying, um, I, I need to make a haircut appointment for my client, Jane. They could have said, hi, this is the Google assistant calling for Jane. Um, she wants to make make an an appointment. appointment. Can we set that up? Mm -hmm. And you know what? If, if people realize the Google assistant means that it's a robot, fine and if they don't i'm kind of okay with it it's like we disclosed it people are going to learn that this is the robot they can ignore it i think i think it needs to if you ask are you a computer it needs to say yes <laughs> right it also needs to admit that it's a computer but i think it needs to disclose it up front but we can have those ethical debates about it i think if they had done that this whole conversation goes away but they didn't do it because they thought it would be funnier 
and mm-hmm. more entertaining and more buzzworthy if they did a video on stage that fooled people, which is why it had that crank call aspect to it, yeah. which made the people who answered the phone the butts of the jokes. And that's, uh, that is the, a clear example of punching down, right? It's like Google, one of the most powerful companies in the world, is at their co- developers conference making people laugh at the humans on the other end of the phone who don't know they're talking to a computer. It's not good. Yeah, I... In this instance, whilst I am disappointed about it, I am willing to give Google a pass because they have they've responded and they've given me what I want. And because but really, I feel like a lot of this this AI stuff we're new in this, you know, like totally. try, trying to understand how we interact with convincing artificial intelligence. That is a new thing for us as humans and, and people who use technology. They screwed up. I don't expect them to to make this kind of mistake again. And as long as like if I you know if I see them doing this kind of stuff in the future and they seem to do it in a what I consider to be more kind of humane and ethical way, like less tricking and more up more disclosure, like then I'm willing to forget that this happened, right? Because this isn't something that I can do to someone today. It was just like a little demo that they were showing. It was in poor taste. And they've kind of apologized. They've made clear what they're going to do. As long as they stick on that path, I'm cool with it. Because as I say, this is this is new. This is new for us. Like how yeah. how how artificial intelligences and robots and humans interact with each other. Like we've had it in fantasy for many years, but it's only now getting to the point where it can be a trick. Well, right. This is this is an ethical question that is new in terms of it being real. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to cut Google quite as much slack as you because mm-hmm. I think the problem is that I, I thought they were further along in, in in changing kind of their culture about this stuff. And this feels very much like classic old Google of not really thinking through the ramifications of what they're doing. I do think that having it happen this way is going to lend more uh, power to the people inside Google saying we need to be much more aware there of this were a stuff. bunch of i told right. you so's on like thursday morning you know yeah i i think so i hope so and and uh, there better be because if everybody thought it was great and nobody even questioned it i to be honest you talk about the evolving culture and how we deal with this stuff that was the thing that that made me most relieved is that i went through that day of the keynote thinking boy that google thing is not good like the more i thought about it the more uncomfortable it made me and the next morning, I was looking at uh, stories about it, and I was very happy to find that almost universally people who wrote about it yeah. had the same issues I had, because that suggests to me that that this is not a an esoteric question, that everybody, or at least many people involved, immediately said, you should not have done that that way, and brought up a lot of the same issues. And I'm, I'm encouraged by that, because that is how you set these boundaries, is by having a lot of people react negatively and say, you crossed a boundary, and having the company, whether it's Google or Amazon or Microsoft or Apple, say, hmm, you're right, okay, we didn't know that boundary was there, you're right, it's there, we're not going to cross that boundary again. And that's how we set boundaries. <laughs> is by doing it this way. So I was happy that the reaction was what it was because the world could have just said, no, it's fine, we don't care. And I would have been like, but this is super creepy. And everybody would have been like, "Meh, you're just too sensitive. It's fine. We don't care about this. Robots calling people, whatever. And that's not what happened. I mean, there are people who responded that way, but a lot of people didn't. And I find that encouraging too. And a little, I mean, again, let's wrap this up by saying Apple 
is we've talked about many times so behind in a lot of this stuff the feeling that like apple is struggling to with siri and struggling to do this stuff and they hired you know machine learning people from google and they're they're working on it and they say they're they're going to get better and all of those things right this demo was amazing in showing google's technological prowess and i gotta be honest like that's why they did the demo they're bragging they're showing off and they're showing how far they are ahead of the competition and while it showed that google has some real problems with the ethics of the use of their technology it also did show how far ahead they are of everyone else so far as we can tell and uh, they are like there's no doubt about that part of it they this is an amazing bit of technology and even though i'm skeptical about whether it would work in the long run the fact that they would even show it on stage is like you know this is the kind of stuff that Google is is thinking of doing. And um, that's the future. Everybody's going to get there. It's going to happen over time. But um, I think they're right to not take a victory lap, but just brag a little bit about where they are. I, uh, the the point that we're at now, I, I almost feel like just saying, like, just sit this one out, Apple. Like... I don't think they can, but I think that um, if, if, again, I, I don't want to say it this way. I was going to say if I were at Apple, I, I wonder if what is happening at Apple or maybe what would be best for Apple at this point is basically to tear Siri down and build a new Siri. And maybe they've tried that and maybe they are trying that. Maybe they did do that and it's still a problem. But like, it feels like Apple is was ahead to start but now has struggled over time. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know whether tearing it down is the solution or more rapid iterations for Siri. I, I we don't know why, but I feel like it's important enough that they need to keep doing it. But you know, I don't know. They they got to think that this is a key part of their future, and yet it you know, uh, let's let's say maybe the best thing the HomePod will do is make it clear to Apple just how important Siri being better is to their future. I don't know because you're right. You're right. It is, um, in many places, Apple is ahead, or you could say Apple and Google are doing similar things, but they are uh, serving different audiences and have different philosophies. It's hard for me to look at this category and not say that Apple is way behind Google and Amazon. Yeah, like Siri is still misunderstanding who like what like so we have a thing in our house that's just started happening the last two days where Idina is saying oh hi telephone and it's picking up her iPhone instead of the home pod yeah. like well that's not supposed to happen though right like so that's like now mm-hmm. what's going on so and then I see something like this and I'm like oh man like wow like this is very different isn't it like and and, and I just I don't really know I don't really I just can't I just can't imagine what the the path is for them i I really don't i don't see but hopefully we'll see something in a couple of weeks maybe they're working behind the scenes and they're gonna reveal all let's uh cross our fingers on that one this episode is also brought to you by our friends over at pingdom if your website was down right now if visitors were coming to your site they couldn't access your content or click that all important buy now button how would you know unless you were sitting there constantly all day every day refreshing your web page. 
But like, what if it was only a problem in certain areas of the world? Like, you wouldn't know this stuff, and you wouldn't know until it was too late. You wouldn't know until somebody emailed you or tweeted at you and told you that your website was down. That's why you need Pingdom. You want that peace of mind. That's the peace of mind that you need to know that everything's being taken care of and monitored all day, every day. Because Pingdom, they use 70 global test servers to emulate visits to your site. They're checking its availability as often as every minute. They monitor the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, making sure that everything is faster and more reliable for you. You can start monitoring your site today. All Pingdom needs is the URL, and they will take care of the rest. And then if something does go wrong, you can tell them to notify you in any way that you please. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now, and you can get a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you sign up, use the code UPGRADE at checkout, and you'll get a massive 30% off your first invoice. That's Pingdom Kingdom.com slash RelayFM and the code upgrade at checkout for 30% off. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and RelayFM. All right, so should we do some hashtag ask upgrade questions? That's a great idea. First one comes from Jeff. Jeff says, if the new iPhone lineup is that released this year is what's rumored, which is three three phones that kind of look like the iPhone X in some way. Do we think that Apple would continue to sell a phone that looks like or is the iPhone 8? What do you think? Yes, I think so, because I think Apple is going to want those different tiers. So you'll have a new iPhone X and X Plus. You'll have an iPhone 9 and 9 Plus, maybe? And then you'll have the eight because you'll they'll want they'll want the previous even cheaper previous generation. That's how they have done it up to now. Because I believe now they're selling the ten, the eight, and the seven. Are they still se- selling the six S too? Apple dot com slash iPhone slash iPhone. <laughs> they are selling the ten, the eight, the seven, the six S, and the SE. Yeah, so there you go. They're they're going back. So they've got the two current models, and then they've got last year's model and the year before's model. So I think yes, I think if they come out with an iPhone ten new new iPhone ten line and an iPhone nine line, let's call it, then yeah, the eight and probably the seven will still be in the product line because Apple discounts those and keeps them on sale for. Um, you know, four years. It's a couple of years back every time. So there you go. I think the answer is yes. Wesley asked, what do you stylish nerds wear on your feet? <laughs> I like this question. Uh, for me, it's mostly Nike. Um, I, I mostly wear Nike sneakers or trainers, as they would be called here in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of the Flyknit Air Max range. Like there's a bunch of Air Max that are made of Flyknit, which is that this like this super soft woven material. Um, but whilst doing uh, preparation for this question, I stumbled upon um, a, a pair of shoes from Adidas uh, or Adidas that I am very very keen on on purchasing, um, which I really really like the look of the this Adidas and Pharrell collaboration. And it's called Prime Knit, which is very much like Fly Knit. That's like this knit, this woven knit material, which is really soft. So yeah, I tend to wear those kinds of those kinds of shoes. Yeah. I, first off, I'm going to just question this premise. Not a sty- <laughs> nerd, yes, stylish, no. Uh, and it, it's worse. My podiatrist uh, 
told me to buy uh, motion control uh, featured shoes. So like they're very specific kinds that have got support that are going to keep my feet not bad. And so I've got a pair of New Balance running shoes. And I think my, I think my, I, I bought a pair of walking shoes. I always used to be a one pair of shoes guy. I literally would only have one pair of shoes and I'd wear them all the time and then they die and I get another pair. But I actually have two. I have, I have these super light New Balance running shoes that are, you know, like fabric all over it. So like the air gets in and, and if you spill water on your shoe, your sock is immediately wet, that kind of thing. This is like the material I'm talking about too. Exactly right. Exactly right. And then I also have a pair of leather black, uh, walking shoes that are, I think new balance as well. Um, although they might be Brooks, but I think they're new balance. And those are, uh, you know, Honestly, during once the weather turns, I never wear those because <laughs> I'm not going to be wearing the big black leather shoes with shorts because <laughs> that's not not. See, there's your that's how stylish I am. Um, but in the winter, they're they're great because they they keep my feet warmer because they don't you know they're leather they're they're keeping the heat in instead of letting it escape. So I've got a couple of pairs. Um, nothing exciting. Sorry. This question from Jay is a little bit more up your street, Jason. I think so. Jay says, Jason, what is your beer style of choice? And can I buy you one at WWDC this year? I already replied to Jay on Twitter and I'll give that same answer here, which is Jay stouts and porters. And yes, (laughs) somebody (laughs) wants to buy me a beer of my, a beer, especially of my choice at WWDC. Yep. Find me someplace where beer is sold. And buy me a beer at WWDC. That's great. I'm there Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. Uh, find me and buy me a beer. Go ahead. Um, I will also extend this by saying I like IPAs. That's my favorite. Um, okay. So yeah, I will also I will also take those beers. Uh, John has asked: Is there a smart speaker on the market that would allow me to use the word computer as the prompt, like on the Enterprise? Most definitely, the Amazon yes, Echo yes, does this the exact Amazon thing. Echo. Yep. Uh, the Amazon Echo, yeah, and I don't have that feature turned on because I use the word computer all the time because yes. I write about computers. Um, but uh, yes, you can absolutely do that with the Amazon Echo. That seems like a terrible word to me, uh, but if that's what you want to go with, go with it. Like that's too frequent a word. At the same, right? I, I couldn't, I could not do that. But if that's your bag, go for it. Uh, Louis wants to know if I still use a pop socket on my iPhone 10? Um, the answer is yes. Pop sockets are, you will have seen these, will be my expectation. Uh, I will put a link in the show notes uh, to pop sockets. Um, it's like this little disc that you can put on the back of a phone and you can pull it out from the back and put your hand into it to hold it. Um, I use my pop socket every day uh, to hold my phone in some way or to stand my phone up. You can like put it in landscape and watch video on it if you want to. There are a bunch of different ways that you can hold your phone with a pop socket. The reason I originally did it uh, was because I was having some RSI pains around the time that I bought my iPhone. Um, but I actually don't think in, in hindsight, I don't think it was the iPhone 10 that was causing it, but I do find it way easier to hold my phone with the pop socket on uh, at times and I stick it on the back of the case and it just sits there. Um, also, it is an incredible fidget toy. Um, I get to just play with this thing and I will say that I converted a couple of people uh, when we were, it was a bunch of us were together last week 
to uh, get pop sockets. So I understand that they are not for everyone. I understand that they are not for most people, but it works really great for me. And if you buy me that beer at WWDC, I can show you why I think a pop socket's <laughs> a great thing. Way to tie it all together. Yeah, I saw you with your weird thing on the back of your iPhone. Mm-hmm. And I did not like it. No, and I get it. I understand why people wouldn't like it. Um, But like, you know, a lot of people like, oh, does it get stuck in your pocket? Never get stuck on my pocket because I put my phone into my pocket covering that. Like my hand kind of like guides my phone into my pocket anyway, so it never gets stuck. Uh, I like it. and But I understand why a lot of people wouldn't like it. Uh, But it works really, really well for me. And I find it very comfortable. And I mean, I already have this huge orange case on my phone anyway. Like, I don't think I would stick one of these to the back of an iPhone. Um, it has that kind of glue that is, like, re-adhesive. Like, it's really strong, but, like, you can get it off and put it back. It doesn't leave marks. But, I mean, I would put this on the outside of a case, but not directly onto a phone. And our last question today comes uh, from Dan. And Dan says, if you're only working on an iPad with no Mac or computer from which to make backups, is iCloud backup and a cloud storage service enough to secure your data? It's like a cloud storage service like Dropbox. I assume it's not as good as a backup service like with versioning and stuff like that and file restoring, but is it enough? This is a really interesting question that I don't feel like I have a really good answer for. But it is totally something that needs to be thought about, I think. I think it's great that Apple has iCloud backup, right? Because Mm -hmm. then we wouldn't have backup, iCloud backup. It would be nice if other services could back up your iPhone. Although, again, then there's issues of security. You're letting apps access all of your iPhone's data in order to back it up. like, And that that would be a lot of security effort in making that possible. Um, The good news is, yeah, iCloud backup is there. And, uh, and then there's, um, you could use a cloud service. And, uh, I I think the answer to this question is yes, it's enough. But if you have, if you're worried about versioning, I would say use a sync service that supports versioning and Dropbox is a good example of that, where you get, I think 30 days covered. Mm -hmm. And then you can also buy the pack rat version where you get unlimited versioning, or there may be an interim step where you get a year's versioning. There are, there are things like that. And if you're worried about versioning, use apps and a service that let you that auto version your backups, and that will that will save you a lot. But the, and then for everything else, there's iCloud, like for your entire image. But if you're worried about details of documents and you can sync them to a cloud service, that's the way to go. Yeah, and I think it definitely sounds like that is the situation that Dan is in, right? I'm assuming uh, they're using Dropbox for the for the files, right? And and this is what I do. I mean, I have the added thing of because I use a Mac which has Backblaze attached to it, those files are also backed up with Backblaze, right? Because I actually have Backblaze look at my Dropbox folder and make a backup of it, um, which works great for me. And it means that all those files, as well as being kind of backed up in whatever way Dropbox will do it, um, it's also backed up in uh, Backblaze as well, as well as on a time machine. I mean, that's kind of my setup. I think that's pretty good. But if I was running the iOS only lifestyle, this like completely only iOS, that's probably what I would do is all files and data get stored in applications that can talk to Dropbox because it at least has some kind of uh, pretty good file recovery, right? Like I found the file recovery to be to work pretty well. 
Um, and then, as you say, you also have for everything else, you have the iOS backups, which you can get some versions of, that, although it seems to be a bit random which versions you end up getting access to. Um, it is a problem, right. but it is solvable in some ways. Like, it's possible to do it in some ways. And there are, like, um, you can buy these little USB lightning-y things, right, which you can plug in and you can back up onto, but, like, I don't know how great that's going to be, like, for, you know, for for local backup. But, yeah, it's a good question. I would love, I would love it if it was possible to have a more robust solution at some point, um, but I don't see it coming anytime soon, if ever. All right, if you want to find our show notes for this week, you can go over to relay.fm slash upgrade slash 193. If you'd like to send in a question for us at the end of the show for us to answer and give the best answers we possibly can on, whether it's about shoes or backup services or pop sockets, you can send in questions with the hashtag Mm. AskUpgrade, and we will pick some of those out every episode, as we always do. Um, I want to thank Pingdom, FreshBooks, and Simple Contacts for their support of this show. Uh, we'll be back next week if you want to find Jason online he's at jsnell on twitter j-s-n-e-l-l and he writes at sixcolors.com I am at imike i-m-y-k-e once again if you bought a ticket to our WWDC live show and you have yet to purchase a ticket at the new venue uh, please check your email for a message from Comp from last week and uh, buy a ticket and we hope to see you there again I'm sorry for the inconvenience that this has caused uh, but I really hope that, that you come along to the new show because it's going to be amazing uh, but uh, until next time say goodbye Jason Snell goodbye everybody 